Welcome to the official podcast of Apostolic Lighthouse. We'd like to thank you for listening today. We pray this message blesses you and encourages you to see that God is working in your life. Enjoy the message. And you may be seated. I don't have a scripture to read uh, to to open up, uh, but last week we talked about the church. And we're going to just do a few Thursdays on um, the, uh, the basics of uh, coming to God and uh, how to be a part of the kingdom of God on this earth and the church. And so tonight I want to teach on the subject, the first steps to God. The first steps to God. And, you know, the very first thing we need to do when we come to God is we got to believe that he exists. We have to. Amen. We have to believe, you know, because if we can't, we can't come to God on somebody else's word or somebody else's experience, um, you know, uh, because if it's not in our heart, we're not going to go very far. Uh, that, that's why even though uh, children are raised, maybe raised in the church by their parents that are serving the Lord, they have to come to uh uh, an understanding and a commitment with, to God on their own. Amen. So they have to believe in God, not just because their parents do. Amen. Because nobody's being saved by third-party proxy or anybody else. We have to, our own soul has to has get, to get right with God. So we got to believe that he exists. That's the fir- very first thing. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, He who comes to God must believe that he is must believe that he is. Amen. And that's very important because otherwise the word's not going to work. Nothing's going to work if we don't believe. That's our very first uh, part of faith. Then after we believe that he is, we must believe that his word is true and absolute. Amen. 2 Timothy 3.16 said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And, and that is a beautiful thing when we understand that all scripture, in other words, is God breathed, then we um, can have an appreciation. We believe in God and we believe in his word. Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that's where we have an understanding of his word. And then Matthew 24, 35 Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So we believe in that he exists and we believe in his word. And uh, it's very important uh, that we wholeheartedly, when we talk about believing in his word, let's go all the way back to Genesis. And the word Genesis actually means beginning. And so that is a very fit, uh, fitting word for that book, for the very first book of the Bible. So if we wholeheartedly believe in the first four words of the Bible, then we can believe the rest of the Bible. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, those first four words, in the beginning, God, then you can believe the rest of the Bible. If you can believe in the beginning, God, then you can believe that the Red Sea parted when Moses put his rod in in the sea, You can believe that uh, a whale swallowed Jonah and uh, he was okay in that whale for three days and three nights before he was uh, 
you know, kind of burped up on the beach, so to speak. Uh, you can believe uh, that Jesus walked on water. Uh, you can believe that uh, Samson took the, the huge gates of uh, the city off uh, and carried them up on the hill and threw them over there. You can believe all kinds of things. You can believe that people lay hands on sick and they recover. You can believe it all if you believe in the beginning, God. Because, see, if we believe in the beginning, God, then we can't believe some other things. For instance, some things are what we, we consider mutually exclusive. And I'll give you an example. If I believe in the beginning, God, uh, then the Bible tells me that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, who were the very first human beings, and they were created as human beings. Amen. But if I don't believe that, then I believe the other school of thought, which is a theory of evolution, which, uh, which uh, teaches that people uh, evolved over millions of years from very much lower life forms, even starting with like tapeworms and other kind of things. So it's either, it, you know, you can't have both in that situation. So that's why it's very important in the beginning, God. Amen. And once we believe he exists and that his word is true, the next step is for us to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is what actually has the power to save us. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. So when you hear the word salvation or you read the word saved, or saved in the Bible, uh, what that is referring to is when a person's heart and soul gets right with God so that they will be ready to spend eternity in heaven with him. Amen? So the gospel of Jesus Christ consists of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul outlines this in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So he's going to tell us what the gospel is. He says, I, it, it's what I preach to you, and it's what you received, it's what you stand in and on, and by which also you are saved. So there, that word saved again. It's very important. So the gospel saves us. It's important to know that the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God in and of themselves, do not save us. It's because of the love, mercy, and grace of God that we have a gospel, but there's a specific plan for us to enter into the kingdom of God, to, to be a part of God's church. And so he said in verse 3, for I delivered to you, he's going to tell us the gospel, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So it's all according to the scriptures. Salvation is according to the scriptures. And so he says the gospel is death, burial, resurrection. It's three parts. So to obey the gospel is to figuratively and spiritually identify with each one of these three things. And the first step in obeying the gospel is identifying with his death. Because we have to understand that death has to come before burial because it's not good to bury live people. It's not a good practice. So you have to die, 
then you're buried, okay? And that's very important. So the first step is the death of Jesus Christ that we are um, associating ourselves with in a spiritual sense. Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So we're talking about being dead with him, being crucified with him, not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. And verse 8 said, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also we shall also live with him. And that's the promise. So we die with him spiritually, and we're going to live with him spiritually as well. Galatians 2.20 said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see, I'm crucified with Christ, but I'm still alive. Because it's not, it's not a, a, a literal thing. It is a, uh, a figurative thing. And so we accomplish this uh, figurative and spiritual dying out and identifying with his death by repentance, by repenting. That is how we die. That's how we accomplish the death part of the gospel. And repentance was first preached in the New Testament when John the Baptist came on the scene. Remember, he was, he was Jesus' older cousin by six months old older than him and he came on the scene and he prepared the way of Jesus he, he preached repentance and he preached uh, baptism that's what his his thing was and uh, and then he faded off the scene and then Jesus came on six months later and started his ministry and John the Baptist his his very older cousin actually baptized him in the Jordan River and um, so John said this in Matthew 3, 2. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus started his earthly ministry, he continued this message of, ne of the necessity of repentance. And he said in Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. So repentance was a theme in the, in, the, in the Gospels, in the ministry of John and Jesus. And repentance is basically, you know, we, we think of it as, well, when somebody repents, they ask God to forgive them, right? But it's much more than that. It's, yes, asking God to forgive us of our past sins, but it's also asking Him to help us have a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction in our lives. Because repentance is really an about face. Uh, it, you know, it's we're going our, this direction one day, and we uh, come to a belief in God, and a belief in His Word, and we someone tells us about the gospel, and then we repent, and then we start changing our direction. Uh, we don't wait for baptism to change our direction. We don't wait for the Holy Ghost to change our direction. We begin changing our direction at repentance. Amen. It is a dying out to our old self and our old ways. So true repentance will always bring about positive change in our lives. And that is 
gonna, that, that will be evident to everybody around us. Everyone's going to know at repentance that something is going on in your life in a good way. Amen. Now, John the Baptist told the people, and he, told, he talked to them about repentance, and he said, Matthew 3, verse 8, he said, Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance. Now, fruit is another word for actions. Uh, and so he said, prove basically by your actions that you've repented. You know, not, repentance is not just saying, you know, that you're asking God to forgive you. You show God. Uh, let me, let me uh, read this in the New Living Translation he, in Matthew 3. He said, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Amen. Now, I know I've said it a million times. You don't get good to get God. You get God to get good. However, amen, part of getting God is repentance, and we will start changing. we got to show God you know, at least some kind of a change at repentance, that we are serious. We are making a commitment, and we obviously need His help. We need His Spirit. Acts chapter 26, 20, uh, the Bible said that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So repentance can be seen, just like faith can be seen. A lot of things can be seen. It's not just kind of like something out there. But repentance is much more than just saying you're sorry or being sorry. Amen. And Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He said, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, and as a result, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter." So Paul explains the difference between godly sorrow and the sorrow of this world. There's a difference. Now, the sorrow of this world is like, man, I'm sorry I got caught, kind of. That's kind of like the sorrow of this world a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry that you caught me, and I'm going to be better at covering it up this next time. No, that's the sorrow of the world. Or the sorrow of the world is, you know, I'm sorry, you know, whatever, and... You know, and then you do it, then they do it again like the next minute or something. So, but godly sorrow is heartfelt and it's a real change. There's a real uh, evidence there. Amen. Now, true repentance requires humility, right? Because if I don't have humility, I'm not, you know, going to get on my knees or I'm not going to ask somebody to forgive me or anything because it takes humility to admit you're wrong. You know, sometimes you got to eat crow pie, like the old saying goes, you know, or what is it? Eat crow. I don't know. I think I threw the pie in there, whatever. But, um, <laughs> but so it takes humility to admit you're wrong. It takes humility to ask somebody for forgiveness sometimes. And it takes humility to ask God to help you in your life when all these years you thought you were the Lone Ranger and you could do it yourself and I don't need nobody's help and I can do it myself. But, you know, we get to the place where humility will lead us to repentance. 
And humility goes a long way with God. It does. It goes a long way with God. James 4, 6 tells us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So a, a, a proud heart, a proud look, it doesn't get God, you know, anywhere with God. Amen. Because it is a, God resists that. God doesn't like that. But God gives grace to the humble. And if you want grace in your life, and that's when we, when we repent, we're asking God to forgive us. We're asking God to help us. We need grace in our life, and we need humility to get that grace. Let me tell you how powerful humility is. We, we read in uh, 1 Kings uh, 21 about King Ahab and his, of course, his evil wife Jezebel. And she was a real, I mean, he was an evil guy. He was one of the worst kings and most evil kings, but his wife spurred him on. His wife, you know, talked him into all this stuff. And I mean, Baal worship and, and every, they got the people far away from God. And, um, it got to the place where it was so bad that, uh, you know, and Ahab was, he, he was, you know, he was evil, but, you know, he was also weak. And uh, right next to his, his palace, there was a vineyard that this man owned. And, uh, you know, Ahab wanted that vineyard. And so he went down and asked this guy, hey, I'd like to buy your vineyard. He said, it's not for sale. It's been in my family for generations and I'm keeping it, not for sale. So he went up and had a little temper tantrum and was sucking his thumb. And his wife comes in and says, oh, what happened? And she said, he said, he told her the story. And she said, aren't you the king? You just go take it, basically. And then he, she said, basically, in modern language, she said, you just lay there and take a little nap, have some warm milk, and I'll get back to you. And then she went out, as evil as she was, and then she went and made a, a little arrangement to where this man, this innocent good man that owned this vineyard, where it's going to be accused of, uh, you know, uh, being a, you know, some kind of a liar and all these terrible things that we're going to witness against. And they took him out and they stoned him to death. And then she came back home and said, hey, get up to dry your eyes. You got a vineyard. And then he goes down. He was, he's all excited like a little kid. He goes down to get his vineyard and God, see, God sees it all, folks. So nobody is getting advantage of anything. God is taking care of it. And God said to Elijah, go over to Naboth's vineyard and meet, King, meet Ahab. And I have something for you to tell him. And he just tore into Ahab. He said, Ahab said, what are you doing here, you troublemaker? He said, I know what you did. I know what your wife did. And this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to your wife. This is what's going to happen to all your relatives. And this is all. And he laid it all out. And it was bad news, folks. I mean, Ahab and Jezebel and all their kids and all everything that they had going was going to just go down to the ground and be gone just within a matter of time. And it so bothered Ahab that he went back to his house and he took it to heart. He believed the word of God and he, he humbled himself. He fasted. He sat in sackcloth and ashes and all that stuff that proves, you know, that shows somebody that's, that's uh, being really humble. And, and God told Elijah, he said, you see how Ahab in 1 Kings 21, 29, you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? 
Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity that he had just heard about in his days. In the days of his son will I bring the calamity on his house. That just shows you. I mean, that is one of the wickedest kings there was in Israel. And because he humbled himself, that's the power of humility before God. Another example of that is when Jonah, after he had his three days of uh, solitary confinement inside the well's belly, and he had a lot of time to think, and he decided, I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to go to Nineveh now because, you know, I don't want to do that again. And he went and preached. And he preached, and from the king all the way down, the king said, oh my goodness, we're going to get destroyed. They, they believe the word of God. That's the, that's the first thing. You've got to believe the word of God, and that has to cause you to fear, uh, fear of the Lord, and humility comes after that. And the king said, nobody's eaten in this whole kingdom, all the way down to the babies and the animals. Nobody's eating or drinking. We're going we're gonna to humble ourselves. They sat in sackcloth and ashes. And, uh, and that king said in Jonah 3, 9, he said, who can tell if God will turn and repent or God will change his mind and his heart and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. Let me tell you something. Nineveh was one of the most wicked cities of the Assyrian Empire at the time. And it, it, they, they, ate, they killed prophets. Uh, they did all kinds of terrible things to people that were religious and godly and all that stuff. And yet because of what they did, they humbled themselves God gave Nineveh 150 more years before they were conquered and destroyed because of that. So if God will have mercy on even the most wicked people, if they truly humble themselves and repent, how much more will he do it for his children? If we humble ourselves and we repent when we need to and we come before him, Amen. Humility will get us far in God. Amen. You see, because God can trust a humble person. Because when somebody stays humble, even when after God uses somebody mightily and they don't let it go to their head, but they stay humble and say, it's by the grace of God I am what I am. And, you know, God can do all things through Christ and I can't do anything without him. And God is the one doing it. If we stay humble, God can use us more and he'll, he'll be able to he trust us. Psalms 25, 9, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. And Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord requ require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before, uh, with your God. Amen. That, that's really what God's requiring of us, to do justly, you know, to do right, to love mercy, and to show mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Amen. So repentance grounded in humility will have a powerful effect on our lives and will begin the process of salvation in our lives. Now I said begin because there's more to the gospel. We just talked about the death part, the repentance part. Amen. But there's more to the gospel than just that. Repentance identifies with the death of Jesus 
on the cross. And the next step is to identify with his burial. So next week, we'll talk about identifying with his burial. What an incredible message. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast, and may God bless you.